Today is actually our last day in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, so yeah, some of you are really disappointed. <laughs> wow, a, a, an audible dismay for that one. Um, yeah, yeah this, uh, for some, this has been a really refreshing series. A new look at the kingdom of God and the reality of what this life amounts to. For others, though, I think you guys are sighing, uh, given a breath of relief that Ecclesiastes is finally done, because it has been somewhat discouraging, or at least a little bleak at times. I find that I'm often on the fence as to what I think about Ecclesiastes. Sometimes I think it is really refreshing. Other times I do find it rather discouraging. Both are appropriate, I think, because Ecclesiastes has been kind of relentlessly honest with what this life really amounts to. The things that we've heard in the last weeks is that, okay, you make your life all about wealth, you're going to die and lose it all in the end. You make, you make your life all about pleasure, you're never going to be satisfied. You try to find meaning and purpose in this life, you're going to die and then there's going to be no meaning left. Basically, if you live for this life, all of your hopes and dreams, everything that you've done is going to die with this life. And so if you are living for this life, if you're living in the present, just for, for worldly pleasures, that's a discouraging message. And as I look at my own life, I can admit that sometimes I am discouraged because it's easy to fall into just the mundane life that we have set for ourselves and to, to waste our lives really easily. And that can be discouraging. But... There's the other side of that, where it can be encouraging if we actually are motivated to make our lives all about Christ. We're actually shown the way out of this futile life. If we make our lives all about the kingdom of God, we set ourselves on praising him and worshiping him. We put all of our pleasure, all of our hope, all of our dreams, all of our desires in the kingdom of God. It will not let us down. It will not pass away with the world. We will not live futile lives. But as I reflect on that, I recognize that there's part of me that wants to do that. Part of me that's recognized, maybe intellectually, that that sounds really good to make a life that is all about Christ and therefore full of meaning. But at the same time, there's part of me that is, is holding back and reluctant to commit myself fully to that. And I'm sure many of you are in that same boat as well. And that's why we're leaving Ecclesiastes with this final touch on trusting God. Can we trust God to give him all of our life, make our lives all about the kingdom? And are we sure that that is going to result in a meaningful life that is well spent? And as I've interacted with people in the church, I find that one of the reasons that we have trouble trusting God is because when we look at what God does, his plan, it doesn't always make sense to us. We see in our lives that oftentimes evil is repaid with good and goodness is repaid with evil. And we wrestle with that. We wonder what God is up to. And so my hope is today that we can look at that question really specifically. Why does it seem like the opposite of what should happen often happens? when God says that he is good, when he says that he is just. I think of, I think of stories like uh, a pastor I had, um, a pastor of a pastor, actually, in L.A. 
This is a man who was faithful. He had committed his life to the church. And one day he takes his six-year-old daughter to the doctor to find that she has a football-sized tumor in her abdomen. And after years of chemotherapy at the age of eight, she passes away. We see those kind of stories and we wonder if we can trust this God. If we can give our lives fully to him. Especially when at the same time we see terrorists sustained to old age. And we wonder, well, like, how is that fair? God, what are you up to? So when we're faced with these things, I'm going to see that in the text, we're encouraged to do four things. We're encouraged to remember eternity, to look to the future. We're encouraged to fear God, to keep on fearing him in spite of what's going on. We're encouraged to suffer with Jesus Christ. And finally, we're called to embrace the mystery of God's plan. We're to remember eternity, fear God, suffer with Christ, and embrace the mystery. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 17, and take a look at that. Ecclesiastes 10 through 17, 557 in your black Bibles that are in front of you. Starting at verse 10, read with me. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that I will, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. This is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the earth. Sorry, under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor sleep do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much, may, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. All right. So let's jump into verse 10. This is Solomon's story about the wicked buried. Just to read that again. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So Solomon is essentially telling this story about wicked men. Now, oddly enough, these wicked men are not what we'd expect of the wicked. They're actually going in and out of the holy places. They are the religious wicked men. Now, oddly enough, that's how... The Bible tends to depict 
the most wicked among us. It's that the people who are self-righteous and justify their wickedness by doing religious rituals. And Solomon is recognizing that these men in the church, or in the, in the synagogue probably, or in the temple, they're going in and out, and they are praised, they are well-regarded, even though they are wicked. But at the same time, Solomon is looking at them from the end of their story. He sees that they have been well-regarded their whole life, and now here they are being buried with a good name. And it seems like Solomon is kind of torn about this. How does he feel about this story? On the one hand, he's upset by it. Because these wicked men made it through all of life with this illusion of righteousness. And they're being buried with a good name. Basically, they, they got through all of life without ever being called out by God. And that troubles Solomon. That they kind of got away with this their whole life. There's never justice to pay. And he wonders how a God could tolerate that. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about how God is patient with the wicked. He's patient with all of us. He's patient with the sinners so that he can be gracious and merciful towards them. But Solomon, he, he's not really into that. He doesn't understand this patience of God. These men never repented. And he wonders why God didn't do something about it. But on the other hand, it seems like he takes some comfort in the fact that they are now being buried. Because he sees that finally the fear of God will have the final say. That justice really will be served. Though a sinner does evil, verse 12, a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Solomon knows that there will be justice in the end. All right, so what do we take from this story? What do we take from Solomon's story about these men? First of all, we will see in this life evil being rewarded, evil being sustained, evil being tolerated. And we should not be surprised. We should be mourn over those things. We should be sorry about it. We should hate that that happens. But we are not surprised. Evil has reigned and evil has been rewarded from the very beginning, ever since the fall. I think we like to talk about how these are the most wicked of days, that these are the worst of times. But I think Solomon would say that this is just more of life under the sun, that there is nothing new under the sun, that evil has always had a place. And it has never been a time where it just is taken out quickly and succinctly. That just isn't, doesn't tend to be the case in how God does things. Which helps us know that, that God knows that this is happening. I think non-Christians or people who, who have doubts about God, they like to throw this in our faces. Like they've kind of discovered the flaw in God's master plan. That, oh no, there's, that there's evil. And evil isn't being taken care of. There's no justice for it. 
The thing is that God knows. God knows. The Bible knows. The Bible is honest about that. And the Bible is honest in saying that that doesn't mean we all have to be atheists and agnostics because of it. Instead, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we are not to give in to that wickedness when we see it. That we have a personal responsibility to it. That we're going to be tempted to say, oh, well, everyone's getting away with it. It doesn't seem like God really cares that much. Maybe I can, I can dip my foot in every once in a while and get away with it. Solomon is basically saying that, no, you have to look to the, the long story. The whole game. We're going to the very completion. And you're not allowed to just dip into sin every once in a while. That there will be a payment for that. He encourages us to stay strong and persevere and not get thrown out before the end of the game. To keep persevering to the very end. And part of that is also the fact that he encourages us to continue to fear God. Now, we, because God doesn't seem to act very quickly, I think we think that maybe God is kind of a pushover. You know, that we can kind of mess with him and, and toil with sin and like, oh, it's, it's, it's okay. He's okay. We're okay. Solomon is encouraging us to keep fearing God. To keep remembering that God really does care about sin. He cares about what we do. All right. We don't often talk about the fact that we are called to, to fear God. I think we prefer language like we're supposed to worship God or love God, adore God, maybe even be obedient to God, but we don't like the fear language. We see it in the Bible and it kind of throws off some triggers for us. I think a helpful analogy is to think about a child, a child with their parents. So for children, there should be a healthy fear of their parents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'm sure Catherine's okay with that. <laughs> a healthy fear of the parents. Because kids should know that they can't get away with being snarky, saying mean things, that you can't get away with doing, doing bad stuff because your parents are going to hold you accountable to that. Good parents will, will punish you for it, and rightly so. And so there's, there is a healthy fear there. A fear that says, like, oh, I don't want to mess up. I know what's going to happen. That kind of fear, it isn't independent of love. It's not that the kids shouldn't also love their parents and delight in their parents. No, those things are good. But there's a fear there. And I think that's how we relate to God. We know that God loves us, but we also know that God disciplines those whom he loves. You may even see that as you become a Christian, maybe before you were a Christian, you got away with more than you did now. God holds you accountable because he's treating you like a son and a daughter. He's preparing you for this long road ahead. Actually making sure you get away with less than you did before. Oddly enough, that seems to be the case. All right, so holistically, when we see that evil seems to be winning, it seems to have the day, we need to remember that we're not seeing the whole picture here. We're just seeing the present snapshot, and we need to look to eternity. We need to look to that final day, and everything is going to be made right. 
people aren't getting away with anything in the end. And that ought to be some encouragement to us. That it's not that God has forgotten. God is, God is being patient. But God is, is a fearful God who will bring what needs to be brought. He will bring payment. Alright, so. Secondly, that's not the whole story here. Not only do we see that evil is often rewarded with good, but we also see it the other way around, that good is often given evil in return. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. This is also vanity. So for good people, righteous people, they will be treated like they are wicked. They will be rejected. They will be scorned. They will be treated like the unrighteous. Now we know that that is exactly the opposite of what is supposed to be happening in the Old Testament. The Old Testament throughout is always saying that, no, like, if you do good things, you'll, you'll get good stuff. That's the basis for a lot of the Old Testament covenants. You see all the, what God requires of his people. And then there's a big section of blessings, a couple chapters, that go on and say, and if you are, you are obedient, you'll get all this stuff. <laughs> you'll get good vineyards. You'll get lots of cattle, you know, a big family, wealth, land, all this good stuff. And I think that can throw us off now that we're in a New Testament era. Because it seems like the Old Testament has this prosperity gospel to it. And it kind of does. It does have this like, oh, if you obey, you get all this stuff. We think of David. We think of Abraham. These are men who were really well off. And they were well off because it was a reflection of their obedience. It was a message to all the other gods, all the other nations. That no, if you obey God, he has the ability to bless you. He has the ability to give you all the good things that all these other gods are promising. But the problem is that we have, so we have to ask the question, can we bring that into our time today? Is that still the case? Oftentimes we're like, well, it's the same God. It should work the same way, right? But it, it's not that simple. There's other things that happened in the Old Testament, like animal sacrifices. We don't bring those over. We don't say that we should have to go to Jerusalem and go sacrifice in the temple anymore. No, those things are, are kind of off the table. So what do we do with these worldly blessings that are promised in the Old Testament? I think that our pattern here is that throughout the Old Testament, there's lots of physical stuff that is supposed to point forward to New Testament spiritual realities. Some examples. Let's take the physical temple. The physical temple in Jerusalem. What was that supposed to point forward to? That's actually supposed to point forward to us. To the people of God who are filled with the Holy Spirit as living stones gathered together as the habitation of God. That God dwells with us here and now as his holy temple. For us to now be about some physical temple would be silly. This is a much better reality that we are now living stones and together, here and now, we are the temple of God. 
Or let's take the promised land of Canaan, this land in the desert in the Middle East. What was that supposed to point forward to? That was supposed to point forward to the new land of the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. We'd be silly to go back and, and be all about this wilderness halfway around the world. We have a much better land, a much better promise. And I think the same is true of these physical blessings. These physical blessings are supposed to point forward to spiritual realities, spiritual blessings, spiritual richness and wealth that is sustained in Christ. To give an analogy for that, it's a difference between teaching a toddler versus teaching a teenager. All right, so if, you're, if your toddler uses the potty, you, know, you might give him an M&M or something. <laughs> that's great. That, that's, probably, that's good parenting. If you do that to your teenager, they're probably not going to like it too much. It doesn't make any sense. The, the hope is that it becomes an inherent reward for using the potty successfully. That is the goal. All right, so that's a, that's a goofy, ridiculous example. But it happens, happens in all of life. So you might have teaching your kids how to be polite. You give 10 thank yous and 10 pleases, get, get a reward. But for a teenager, no. You wouldn't give them a lollipop for saying please and thank you. You'd say, oh, like they're, they're actually a really courteous, polite kid. There's an inherent reward. The reward becomes spiritual in a sense. In this time here and now, in the New Testament, we're not being treated like toddlers. We're being treated like teenagers with an inherent spiritual reward. Now, what does that matter for you? I think that as kind of a rabbit trail, this should be humbling for us. I think we like to think that maybe we're well off or successful, maybe wealthy, uh, healthy even, because we're just really good spiritual people. The thing is that there's, there's no connection there. Those things don't go hand in hand. There are really evil people who despise God and they have wonderful lives. Wonderful, successful, amazing lives. And there are God-fearing people who love Christ with all their hearts and souls and minds and they have terrible lives. And so when we see people who are suffering, people who are poor, people who we think are, are less than us, and treat them like they're spiritually inferior, we're actually doing them a great disservice. We're dishonoring them in a way that, that we ought not to. We should, we should see beyond that and recognize that, that the physical doesn't, doesn't display the, the spiritual. What Christ sees is actually valuable. I think we need to be careful about that. I think that, that probably is going to have to come into play as we go to the Cecil County Fair, I think some of us are like a little bit like, ah, these people. Like, no, we're representing Christ. We're not representing our, our class. We're not representing uh, our lifestyle. We're representing Christ. And we value people for the people that they are and seeing them with the eyes of Christ. We need to be careful about that. That'll be a challenge. And I hope that, that we are up to it. All right, so 
We can't live with this simple karma principle that good gets good and bad gets bad. It just doesn't work like that. Even in the Old Testament, it didn't work like that. Think of Job. All right, Job lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his house, he lost his cattle, he lost everything. And all his friends come and try to convince him, no, you must have sinned. You must have done some secret sin that you, you just haven't identified yet. And try to convince him, maybe if you just do like a sweeping, confess everything that you possibly could have done, then God might be nice to you and stop punishing you. And the point of Job is the fact that he, he can't do that. He's not going to lie to God just so that God will be nice to him. He recognizes, no, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a righteous person who is suffering. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, here and there. I think we see that especially in the prophets. Can you imagine being Jeremiah and being told, oh yeah, you're going to go, go and tell the people, you're going to be my voice and no one is going to listen to you. No one. And they're just going to despise you the whole time and that, that's what you're called to do. This is a miserable job. <laughs> it's miserable. But that, that's what he was told to do. There, there are people in the Old Testament who were just called to suffer even though they are righteous men and women. And you know what the point of that was? The point of that was to point forward to the New Testament when we would have a suffering servant who was perfectly righteous and yet endured all the wickedness that he did not deserve. Those men and women, they point forward to Jesus Christ. So if we regarded one person, give me one example of someone who is a righteous person to whom are treated according to the deeds of the wicked. That's uh, terrible wording. <laughs> a good guy treated like a bad guy. That would be Jesus. That would be Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who never mistreated anyone. He served everyone. He gave to them. He taught them the way of life. And they turn around and they kill him. They crucify him. They put him up on this cross. And they totally despise him. When we think that that was God's plan, we recognize, oh, like, God isn't all about this karma thing. You get good for good and evil for evil. Jesus Christ was the best there ever was and he got the worst. And he did that so we who are the worst are treated like righteous men and women. So that we who are evil are treated like we are good. God is not all about this tit for tat. He's actually really generous to us. And so when we accuse God and say like, ah, oh, you're just not being just. We, we remember the cross. Like we like that sometimes God isn't just like that. He hasn't given us bare justice. And we betray our beliefs about the cross when we say that, oh, I, just, I wish God would just judge the nations. I wish he would just judge all these people. No, it's not that simple. We long to see people find the mercy of Christ, the mercy of the gospel, the grace of the gospel. He is the, the one who suffered for us. And as we go about life in the church, actually that same principle is supposed to apply. That those who are the weakest, 
that those who are kind of the most hurting, the most fallen, they're supposed to be served the most. You're supposed to serve the weakest among us. And the most mature among us, the strong believers are called to serve the most and sacrifice the most, to die like Christ the most. When you climb up the Christian ladder, you aren't served more. You actually do more service. You become the lesser in the kingdom of God by becoming more and more mature, more and more like Christ. Right. The application to that, if you see people who are suffering in the church, seem to be suffering for righteousness sake, they receive the greatest amount of honor. They are to be honored as those who are regarded as Christ, who are living out as Christ lived. We rejoice in them. We honor them. They are the greatest among us. And if we ever say that, oh no, they're being punished, we need to be careful. Christ didn't get, didn't, wasn't being punished. He was suffering for other people and suffering for righteousness sake. And that is a beautiful thing. All right. So the question is, uh, what do you do if you're being called to suffer for righteousness sake? What do you do with that? So you suffer and don't just becoming this angry, staunch, cynical, angry Christian. What do you do? How do you suffer well? And the first thing you have to do is you need to suffer with Christ. There needs to be an intimate connection between you and Christ so that you recognize everything I, I'm going through, Christ went through more. And you actually come to know a suffering Savior personally. That's actually the beautiful thing about people who are suffering in the church is that they are closely connected to Jesus Christ. They have an intimate relationship with him because they know what he's been through. That is a beautiful thing to see. We're also, you'd be encouraged if you're suffering to keep pursuing God. You probably don't want to read your Bible. You probably don't want to pray. This is the time to do it anyway because he's the only one that's going to get you through it. Next up, you have to accept that this is what God is doing. You have to accept the suffering for what it is. Christ, Christ had that decision in the garden to accept the suffering or not. He was sweating tears of blood and was asking his father to take this cup from him, but he ultimately said, not my will, but your will. We must come to that point with suffering. And instead of warring against God, we say, your will be done, but God, you're going to have to get me through this. Coming to him for power, not coming to him with a, with a pointing finger, jabbing him for making you suffer. And finally, we need to remember our joy. Now, if we look at verse 15, verse 15 is kind of weird. Uh, this is Solomon's advice for what you're supposed to do when you're suffering. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. All right, so that's, that's Solomon's solution. If you're suffering, 
Just eat, eat and drink and be merry. All right. He's basically saying just kind of like, kind of cover it up. Kind of numb yourself through the pain with a bunch of happiness and enjoyment. Um, I think that's where we get Solomon's cynical side here. And where we get this weird perspective in Ecclesiastes where he's kind of, he's a little bit bitter or at least kind of just limiting his scope to the world and what the world has, what you have access to in, in physical life. And that's where we have to be careful with how we read Ecclesiastes. You don't just read everything in Ecclesiastes and go one to one like, oh, okay, I should, I should just drink a lot more. No. <laughs> as much as you might want to see that in the Bible, it does not say that. Um, what it is saying, it's, it's find your joy. Let joy overwhelm the sorrows. And we have better joys than just physical pleasures. We have the joys that are offered to us in Christ. We have the joy of knowing that in suffering, we will actually be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That there's no other way to do that. And if you really love Jesus, and you want to be like Jesus, then suffering is, is the best way to become like Jesus. To become like the person that he is. You might have the joy of coming to know God as your comforter. Knowing that God is actually there to sustain you. That he's the only one that you really need. There is an everlasting joy in that. That you don't need all of these other things. That God will be your rock and your foundation. And I think finally that one of the good joys of suffering is to be comforted and then to comfort other people. That you become a better minister of Christ. You can give people the comfort you've received. Now, like I said, we've been treating like, treated like teenagers here. That those aren't just God gives you a new car. No, these are deeper spiritual joys. These are better things, ultimately. They're probably not what we want. We're teenagers who still want, still want lollipops for, for rewards, but these are better things. All right. It's our final way of dealing with suffering and the fact that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. We need to remember that God's plan is a lot bigger and greater than our plan. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It's basically saying that you're not going to figure out the will of God. You're not going to figure out his plan. You're not going to put all the puzzle pieces together and figure out what God is up to. Too often in the midst of suffering, we start going on this suffering detective hunt, trying to figure out how all the clues point, and oftentimes we, we look for, oh, it, what, what sin am I committing that God is punishing me for? Or what idol do I need to repent of? Maybe what... What thing do I need to give up that God will be, God will be good to me again? 
We can end up confessing sins that we've never committed. Or like, oh, oh, I have this idol. But you don't really have an idol. You're just kind of making it up and trying to appease God to, to get out of the suffering. Instead of doing all that hunting, trying to figure it all out, we need to accept that God has a bigger plan. God has a mysterious plan that we do not understand. And instead of trying to figure out how all the pieces put together, we need to look at our personal God who is powerful and fearful, yes, but is also proven that he cares in Jesus Christ. He cares for you. He loves you. And when he was thinking of a plan to deal with all this evil in the world, he didn't just say we should destroy it. He decided that the best plan was that he would come and die and suffer for wicked people. Now, if we were thinking of a good plan to get rid of evil, we probably wouldn't have thought of that one. God has better plans in store. He is a, a universal God. A God who is omniscient and omnipotent. A God that we don't even understand fully. He's incomprehensible. That's the God that we worship. And we trust that this good God who sent a Savior, who died for us, that he's got us in his hands and he knows what he's doing. We can trust this God. We can trust him with our lives. We can trust that if we stop investing in this world, we invest in the kingdom of God, that he will not let us down. That we will not live futile, wasted, useless lives. So what would it look like if you really believed that? If you really believed that God is in control and he is good? First of all, you might be more peaceful and joyful and stable in this life. You're not flitting about, worrying about everything. You just have a peace about you. And that even if the world is being crazy, you know that you're okay. You're not being terrified every time you turn the news on. You might find yourself praying more because you actually know that God is in control and he's the only one who can do anything about this life. Or you might actually read this Bible more because you want to know about the God who is in control of the universe. What is this God doing? What is his plan? What is he like? All right. So I guess my, my encouragement would be that this series has been a lot of telling you that you should live your life completely differently. <laughs> and that we're wasting our lives oftentimes. Do you believe that if you change your life, God will actually see you through it? That you will live a life that is meaningful and better as a result? It's a decision to trust God. To trust God in his plan. To trust God in what he's commanding us to do. To trust that Jesus Christ and his salvation and his kingdom are the only place where we can actually put our lives and, and trust. We're, we're left with the decision to trust or not to trust. 
I pray that in light of what Jesus Christ has done with the cross, that you would trust this God, that we would trust this God. We would trust him with our whole lives, not just giving him the spare change, but, but just going all in.